my son in whom I am well pleased. And he's going to bring the word to you this morning. Let's give Josh a hand this morning. Amen. thought I was going to have to come up here and pull the microphone out of my dad's hand. That's how you know he's excited about everything going on in the church right now. Promise to you guys that I am mindful of the time today. We went pretty long in worship, and uh, God's just doing some good things. So uh, I'm very thankful. To add on to the testimonies that are being uh, told today, when we were getting ready for service this morning, I pulled up uh, Facebook on my phone and realized that today is actually uh, a super special day to me as well. Um, not just because of Easter, definitely because of Easter, but not just because of Easter, because today marks three years to the day that Veronica woke up from her coma. What perfect timing. Here we are three, three years later. She's sitting here watching me preach, and we got a baby on the way. So how cool is that? That's awesome. That's awesome. So as we get started this morning, we, as well as churches all over the entire world, are obviously going to be talking about the death and uh, resurrection of Jesus. And it's interesting as you read through the four Gospels, which tell us about the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will notice as you read them, only two speak about his birth, but all four speak about the last week leading up to his death. And fully one-third of the content of the four Gospels is focused on the final week of Jesus' life those days and moments leading up to his death by crucifixion. And today, we'll be focusing in on two of those Gospels, uh, first and foremost, John and Luke. And John's Gospel devotes a great deal of time looking at the crucifixion of Jesus. Roughly half the book of John is focused on the last week of his life. And leaning into that week, John chapter 12, just a, a side note, you don't have to go there, but Jesus himself speaking of the cross in his death says, it was for this very reason that I came. He's saying my entire life, all the roads and the ministries and the temptations and the trails and the teachings have all culminated in this moment that I have come to earth as God for this mission of dying upon the cross. And so what I want to do today is I want to start off by explaining the history and the nature of the death by crucifixion. And the reason for that is because... Obviously, we all know about the cross, right? He died for our sins. He loves us. He came on earth um, as man and God to die for our sins. Yes, that's all true. But oftentimes, the message and the horror of the cross kind of gets lost on us. And my fear is that the message of the cross has, and the horror of the cross has gotten lost on us. So sometimes when I get the opportunity to preach, I, I stand up here and I feel like preacher Do Josh. And then other times I feel like teacher Josh. There's a big difference between the two, and today I'm going to lean a little bit into teacher Josh, if that's okay with you guys. So, first and foremost, crucifixion was invented by the Persians. It's actually mentioned in the Bible in Esther. We find out historically uh, roughly 500 years before the birth of Christ. And it continued until it was perfected by the Romans in the days of Jesus. And it continued until it was outlawed by the Roman Emperor Constantine in roughly the 4th century B.C. So, crucifixion did almost exist for almost a full millennium. Crucifixion was the most horrendous and despicable and disgusting and distasteful way to die. So much so that Romans who executed cru crucifixion tended not to crucify their own people, their own Roman citizens. Instead, they would reserve it for the most horrendous uh, crimes and criminals. The Romans considered it the most disgust disgusting way to die, and so did the Jews. 
Jews. Uh, Jewish historian uh, Josephus calls it the most wretched of deaths. Furthermore, even the Greeks, there are three major roles. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, says anyone, this is part B of the scripture, anyone who was hung on a tree is cursed of God. And so no Jew wanted to be crucified because that meant, according to Deuteronomy, that they were cursed of God. My dad mentioned that at Bible study, which, by the way, if you're not coming to Bible study, you should be because it's amazing. There's my side note. This being said, it may astonish you to hear that crucifixion was actually very common in that day and age. Tens of thousands of people were crucified, and thousands were uh, occasionally crucified in a single day. As an illustrative example, the moment that Spartacus, the, the great warrior, died in battle, a decree was sent forth that 6,000 of his followers were to be crucified in a single day. And they were lined up along the shoulder that stretches about 120 miles. This would be the equivalent of... 6,000 people being crucified on the shoulder of Highway 101. So 6,000 people being crucified along the shoulder of the highway. 6,000 people died by crucifixion in that one day. And crucifixion continued into more recent times. See, we all think of it as something that just happened in biblical times, but it actually happened in, in more recent times as well. When under the leadership of Adolf Hitler, the Nazis crucified Jews in Dachau, hopefully I'm saying that right, with bayonets and with knives, they would run these, these items through people, and they would nail them up to barns and trees and such. And then it was under the leadership of Pol Pot uh, that the Khmer Rouge crucified people in Cambodia. And today, crucifixion continues in the Middle East, where even Christians are being crucified in our present day. All of that to say, crucifixion has a very long history. It's not just a blip on the radar. It has a very, very long history. And is essentially out of practice, except for the most barbaric dictators, and the most horrendous nations. Now, to explain crucifixion is probably going to shake some of you. And sometimes when we come together in church, we, we put on this facade that we got to be, you know, tough guys and, and tough girls and stuff like that. But there should be no shame in being shook by the message of the cross and by the horrors of the cross. Sometimes when we talk about the cross, we talk about it in sort of a glowing, like, flower terms, and we sing little songs, and we wear necklaces, and we wear it on our shirts. But to really understand the cross is to be horrified. It is so altogether horrifying that we invented a word to describe crucifixion. Does anybody know what that word is? Excruciating. Excruciating is a word that literally means from the cross. Death by crucifixion was such a horrible way to die that we had to create a word to explain its horror. Furthermore, what we know is for the most part, it was men who were crucified, and they were crucified face forward, sometimes even crucified at eye level so that those who wanted to mock them and jeer them and spit at them and make sport of them could look them right in the eye to increase their torment. And on the very rare occasion that a woman would be crucified, it was actually customary to turn her backwards, around, and have her face the cross because even such a barbarous people as the Romans couldn't look into the eye of a woman going through excruciating pain. And what made death by crucifixion so excruciatingly painful is that it was a very slow death by asphyxiation. And what I mean is this. The medical professionals tell us that when someone is crucified, essentially their body weight causes them to slump and slouch. The result being they strain to fill up their lungs with air. And that slowly they suffocate to death as they choke on their own blood, vomit, sweat, and tears. They start choking and their lungs are straining to gather air and inhale, uh, air in and exhale, air out. Sometimes they would pass in and out of consciousness. This would mean that someone could remain on the cross in excruciating pain for days, baking in the sun, 
during the day and freezing in the cool of the night, dehydrated, the body traumatized, passing in and out of consciousness, straining to breathe, oozing a great amount of blood and sweating profusely as the body is in shock. This was the most despicable, disgusting, deplorable way to die, death by crucifixion. And what preceded crucifixion was scourging. That in and of itself was so horrendous that it was not uncommon for those who were scourged to die before they even made it to the crucifixion. The Bible tells us regarding Jesus, it simply says that they took Jesus and had him scourged. A very simple little statement there, but from history we know that there's nothing simple about a scourging, right? Um, what scourging is, is a professional executioner would take a handle that had many straps of leather proceeding from it. And in many cases at the end were metal balls that they would beat the flesh of the man and tenderize it. In other cases there were hooks attached to the end of, of the pieces of leather. And these hooks were made of bone or metal. And they would go into the man's flesh, into his neck, into his back, his shoulders, his legs. And he would be stretched out in such a way that you would be able to get the maximum amount, amount of flesh off of his the back of his body. If you've seen the Passion of the Christ, this was pretty accurately portrayed in the Passion of the Christ in terms of how he was stretched out. And that professional executioner would then whip the man, and then he would give it a little tug to the cat of nine tails, which is what it's called, just to make sure that all of the ends were adequately entered into the man's body, and then with two hands, rip it out of the flesh of the man's body. Regarding this, some 600 or 7 years prior, the prophet Isaiah, foreseeing the coming of Jesus and his death by crucifixion, explains it this way in Isaiah 52:14. He says, there were many who were appalled at him. I say this every time I get up here and I preach, but we got to put ourselves in the word, right? When we're reading the Bible, we have to put ourselves in that position. So, had we seen the scourged, crucified Jesus, we would have been appalled at him. Some of us would have thrown up. Some of us would have passed out. Some of us would have looked and then looked away because we couldn't gaze upon the horror. Isaiah 52, 14 continues. It says, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, any human, and his form marred beyond human likeness. That is what happened to our Jesus, to our king. He was completely disfigured. We then know that the bloodied, disfigured, appalling Jesus was given his cross to bear. And something that I found is interesting was that the cross that he bore, the cross that he carried, was actually a recycled cross. So this is a reused cross that somebody else had already been crucified on prior to Jesus carrying it. So you've got to, again, think about that in, in layman's terms. He's carrying a cross with other men's blood, other men's feces, other men's tears, other men's sweat on this. And he's carrying it with a whipped back with his bones and his flesh being all, all mangled. So here is Jesus carrying a cross that might have weighed anywhere from 100 to 300 pounds. It was rough, hewed timber with splinters and edges, and Jesus is back with the bones and muscles exposed and the flesh removed had this cross laid on it. And though he was a strong, healthy, essentially young man, he was too weak to carry it after his bloody beating, after his sleepless night. And so they appointed a man named Simon to assist him in the carrying of the cross. And then the scripture records, then they took the Lord Jesus to his place of crucifixion. They stripped him naked. They put a crown of thorns on him. They mocked him, screamed profanities at him. They made a big spectacle of him and, and made it almost as if it was a big joke. And Jesus was laid on the wooden cross and spikes five to seven inches in length were driven. The Bible says through his wrist or his hands. 
and through his feet. And then there would have been a hole in the ground to hold the cross upright. And so the cross would be lifted up and shoved forward and then fell into the ground, traumatizing the body as Jesus literally shook on the cross. And it is recorded in history that this moment the crowds would gather. Some of the lowest life scum would come around. They would get drunk and they would make almost sport of it. They would all get drunk. They would throw rocks and spit and, and curse at the men on the cross. The lowest life scum. They would make a, a party out of it. While maybe his, his mother and his friends were standing near. Watching their friend, their, their son, their brother get crucified. And oftentimes... The men on the cross who had just a little bit of fight left in them, they wouldn't, like, they wouldn't stand for this, right? Like some of us might not. They wouldn't stand for this. Their family is standing there and they're getting cursed at and they don't feel good in, in the first place. So what they would do is they would scream back and they would curse at them and they would spit on them. And they would yell at them. The Bible says that Jesus didn't do any of those things. Isaiah says, as a lamb is going in for, listen to this. As a lamb is going in for a shearing is silent and calm, so Jesus was that way. Jesus did not declare war. He didn't curse everyone out. He didn't spit on his enemies. Instead, he said things like, Father, forgive them. Jesus was a loving, compassionate, gracious man all the way to the end. And even his suffering did not diminish his character. And perhaps what is most astonishing about this is crucifixion was not done in obscurity, often a corner in a private place. This was done very publicly in a very open, highly trafficked area. This would be similar today of you going to the grocery store, Safeway or McKay's, and seeing that they're crucifying a man in the middle of a parking lot. Everybody's seen it. All eyes were on the crucifixion. Speaking of this in Isaiah 53, Isaiah again prophesied before the coming of Jesus, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. Again, put yourself in the Bible. Had we been there, we would have looked at Jesus and said, he's a horrible man. Thank God I'm not like that man, Jesus, up on the cross. That's the conclusion that we would have come to according to Isaiah. Cursed is any man hung on a tree. He must be cursed. He, therefore, must be the most despicable of men. Now, what I also find interesting and very curious about the crucifixion of Jesus is, again, Isaiah prophesied many years before Jesus' birth that he would die with criminals, that he would be crucified with the guilty. And as Isaiah, as Isaiah promised, Jesus was crucified with two guilty thieves, with two guilty sinners. Everybody say two. Everybody say it again. Two. Two. Transitioning from John to Luke here, Luke 23, 39 through 43. I encourage you guys to jump there. where we get into the good news. Luke 23, 39 through 43 says this. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, him being Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. I don't know about you guys, but I'm thankful that we don't get what our deeds deserve often. But this man has done nothing wrong. 
Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. I want you to pay careful attention because I'm going to ask you a math question here in a moment. And the answer is in the text here. So if you don't get it right, you're probably going to feel guilty about not paying attention on Easter Sunday, right? It's very easy. It's in, in, in the scripture here. So two other men, both crucified, were also led out with Jesus to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, the crucified Jesus there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. The question is this, how many people were hanging on the cross? Three. It's not a trick question, I promise. How many people, how many people, because only three people answered there, right? How many people were hanging on the cross? Three. three. The answer is three, right? And we've spent the last few minutes talking about death by crucifixion and how it was the most spiritually shameful way to die for the worst type of people. And in other words, these two criminals hanging next to Jesus, they weren't pickpockets, right? They had done something deserving of this very brutal death. This is very expensive, very painful, very shameful way to die. Three people were hanging on the cross that day. Jesus in the middle of this, as the crowd was spitting on him, imagine this, okay, cursing at him, he looks up to heaven and he prays. What he did not pray was God send 1,000 angels with swords and wipe them out. What he did not pray was give them some sort of disease or whatever, you know, something that I might do. What he did pray was, Father, forgive them because they don't even know what they're doing. Scripture goes on to say that one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. This arrogant, prideful, very guilty man who saw no need whatsoever for mercy, for grace, or a Savior hurls insults at Jesus. But the other criminal rebuked the first one and asked, don't you even fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. Then the criminal, he says something very interesting to me. He said, we're punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. The other criminal recognized we, can, we committed, we, we don't know what it was, right? The Bible doesn't outline that, but we know historically and through, through the word that they had done something wrong. So we don't know what he did, but they committed some type of very real, very significant crime. And the punishment that we're getting for our actions is fair. It's just. We are getting what we deserve. The second criminal, let's look at what he said directly again. He said, we are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But then he looks at Jesus and he said, but this man, Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. And watch what this criminal who's aware of his own sins says. He looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And let me tell you what Jesus did not say one more time. Jesus didn't look at this man and say, no, 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 no. Your entire life was spent in sin. You weren't there all the times that I preached my message with the rest of the disciples and with the rest of the followers. I never liked the way you looked. I never liked the way you talked. I never liked the way you sinned. So you're stuck in your sin. It's not what Jesus said. Let me tell you what he did say. And let me tell you who he said it to. He said it to a criminal who couldn't do a single thing to earn his right standing with God. He said it to a person who couldn't do a single work because his hands were spiked to a tree. He couldn't turn over a new leaf because his feet were bound. He couldn't get baptized. He couldn't join a church. He couldn't give an offering. He couldn't even lift up his hands to God because his hands were bound. He couldn't do a single thing to earn any right standing with God. And Jesus looked at this guilty, sinful, and repentant man. And this is what Jesus said. 
Jesus said that I tell you today, 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 you will be with me in paradise. Your sins will be forgiven. Even though you can't earn it, even though there's nothing that you can do to deserve it, I will show you grace and you'll, you will be with me in paradise. Reading this brings to light, at least for me, two types of people. The first type of people would look at that and they would say, well, that's just not fair. It's not fair that this man who spent his entire life sinning, his entire life doing the things opposite of what God called him to do. It's unfair that this man would get to go into heaven with Jesus. When all these people that have been following him, who have been dedicating their lives, they said the prayers, they did the communion, right? They fasted the food. They've been spending their entire lives following after Jesus, and yet this man waits till the last moment. It's not fair. And then there's people B who say, you know what, I'm just like that guilty sinner, but I'm still filthy. The difference between me and this sinner is that Jesus forgave this sinner. He could never forgive me of my sins. Or better yet, I could never forgive me of my sins. I could never get over the hump. Scripture says this, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. I want you to notice this. Like the rest, like all of us, like you, like me, by nature, because of our sinful nature, we deserve punishment from God. That's what scripture says. By nature, we were deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, our good God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive. Church, I hope somebody will know it and feel it and believe it, that Jesus did not come just to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive. Our God is that good. Scripture says, for it's by grace that you have been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that nobody can boast. Jesus makes dead people alive. Jesus makes dead people alive. Do we believe that this morning? Imagine for a moment what it would be like for that undeserving criminal to hear those words on the cross. You're forgiven. Your sins will not be held against you. You'll be in paradise with me. Imagine further, if you will, with me just this morning, just for kicks and giggles, if the Roman guards heard that and thought, well, we might as well let this guy down. We might as well let this guy down. It didn't happen, but imagine if it did. Imagine if they took this guy, this criminal, this guilty guy, and let him down off the cross. He would have horrible wounds, but listen, his wounds would heal. He would recover, and there would be years added to his life. What do you guys think the rest of his life would be dedicated to, devoted to? Jesus, after someone else died so he could live, every moment, every day, there would never be a day where he wouldn't think about the innocent man who died for him. Never a day. His life would be fully devoted, completely given to the one who gave it all for him. By his grace, I am saved. I feel that because his story is my story. Because that sinner's story is my story. I thank God for his unfailing love. I thank God for his word. I thank God for his grace and his goodness. How many people were hanging on the cross that day? One more time. How many people were hanging on the cross that day? Three. Recently, I started doing a study on something called numerology in the Bible. It's the study of the spiritual meaning behind numbers. If you've never studied it, it's fascinating. I do recommend it. 
Um, but a, a couple of things that I found out. Numbers have meanings. There's never a coincidence in Scripture. When there's a number in there, it's not by coincidence. Okay? It represents, um, or, or there, there are many different representations. Like one represents unity or oneness of God. It represents God. Four, if you see it in the Scripture. My dad talked about this at Bible study again. Four, if you see it in the Scripture, tends to represent the earth. Five represents grace. Seven is perfection or holiness, God's number. Six is one less than perfection, the number of man and the number of the evil one, 666. Eight represents new beginnings. Ten is the number of testing. Forty is the number of trials. And there's all sorts of different things where you'll see a, a spiritual meaning or a spiritual theme behind the numbers. But here's what I found interesting as I was getting this message together. Three in scripture always means completeness or wholeness. It means it's completed, it's fully done, it's whole. God is often, often represented in three different natures. Who is God? He is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are often seen as triune beings. We are body, soul, and spirit. God is represented many times and described as having three qualities. He's omnipresent, he's everywhere, he's omniscient, he's all-knowing, and he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful. In Revelation, Jesus was described as the one who was and is and is to come. In the Old Testament, there's three fathers. There's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The tabernacle has three sections, the outer court, the inner court, and the holy of holies. The angels cried out to God three times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Daniel prayed three times a day. Jonah was in the belly of the well for three days. The New Testament has 27 books in the Bible, 27 to 7. That happens to be three times three times three. And I know I'm pushing it, but work with me here because this is fun. The Apostle Paul was blinded for three days with a bright light from heaven. He prayed three times for the thorn that tormented him. He was stranded on Malta for three months after being shipwrecked. Jesus, when he was born, had wise men visit him who brought him three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. At the age of 12, he was separated from his mom and his dad for three days. His public ministry lasted three years. It started at the age of 30 and ended at the age of 33. He was tempted three times by the devil in the desert. He had 12 disciples, but only three of them were in his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, who saw him at the Mount of Transfiguration and who also were with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him three times, and Peter did. He restored him, showed his love and his grace to him three different times before Peter preached to Pentecost. God spoke audibly, recorded in Scripture to Jesus three times. Jesus raised three people from the dead. Jesus prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane. Tradition tells us that he also fell three times while carrying the cross. There were three men hanging on the cross that day, and above Jesus' cross was a sign that said, King of the Jews, written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And you're all sitting here saying, well, what's this got to do with anything? You're talking about a bunch of threes. What's this got to do with anything, Josh? Well, it all leads up to this. This is the part where we celebrate. Jesus, God's son, our savior, was placed on the cross at the third hour of the day. At the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., he declared three words of victory. Jesus said, it is is finished. It is finished. The earth shook, darkness fell across the land, and the world went silent. No hope, no life. Day one, nothing happened. Day two, nothing happened. But on the third day, when the women went to the tomb, the stone was rolled away. It had been rolled away. 
Because the work that our God sent Jesus to do, he completed. It was perfect. It was done. It was over. It is finished, he declared. And that's why they will no longer hold our sins against us when we are in Christ. And it's also why Jesus can look at a repentant man on the cross who can't do anything at all to gain his right standing with Jesus. And he can say, you are forgiven. Because forgiveness ain't fair. Thank God that forgiveness ain't fair. Thank God that forgiveness ain't fair. It's because of this that Jesus can look at a repentant person who could do nothing to earn their forgiveness and declare your sins are forgiven. Because it is finished and because he lives. If you walked in this morning and you're watching and your guilt is heavy, you're not here by accident. If you're watching online, you're not here by accident. I believe that God brought you here for a reason. If you feel dead on the inside, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And that's why we give him glory, we give him honor, and we give him praise because he is risen. Amen? Let's close with that. Father God, I just thank you this morning. I thank you that you are risen. I thank you that you came and, and died the death that we should have died. God, we declare this morning, if you walked out of that grave, then we are walking too. We declare this morning that we are no longer dead in our transgressions. Because of your sacrifice, because of your life, God, we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that you are risen and we no longer have to be dead in sin. And God, I pray for anybody who's watching this morning, for anybody who, who is here this morning, who came in feeling a little bit dead who came in feeling dead in their sins. I pray that this morning you would speak life into them like they have never felt before, Father God. I pray that you would breathe a fresh life into their lungs this morning, Father God, that you would speak into their life, that you would silence the voice of the enemy that says you will never have a chance with God. You can never come back from your sins. I pray that you would silence the voice of the chatterbox, silence the voice of the enemy, and that the only voice that they would hear is your voice shouting out, you are alive. Shouting out, you are alive. Shouting out, you are worth dying for. Father God, we thank you for your life. We thank you for what this day represents. It is not lost on us. It is not lost on us. So, Father God, I pray that as we move forward with our day, move forward with our week, that we would not lose sight of what today represents. God, we love you. We thank you for your life, for the cross, for what you're doing in this church, for what you're doing in our lives, for what you're doing in our families. I pray that this week you would shower your favor on us, God, that you would shower your favor on us, Father. I pray that you would help us to leave differently than we came in, that we would leave our chains here at the altar, that we would leave our condemnation here at the altar, and we would walk out proclaiming that the blood is still the blood. We thank you for that. In your name we pray. Everybody said? Amen. You guys be blessed.